Chapter Thirteen of the Precipice. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Precipice by Elia Wilkinson Peedy. Chapter Thirteen. Since Kate had begun to write, a hundred, a thousand half-forgotten experiences had come back to her. As they returned to her memory, they acquired significance. They related themselves with other incidents or with opinions. They illustrated life, and however negligible in themselves, they attained a value because of their relation to the whole. It was seldom that she felt lonely now. Her newly acquired power of self-expression seemed to extend and supplement her personality. August von Schreerbrand had said that he wished to marry her because she completed him. It had occurred to her at the time, though she suppressed her inclination to say so, that she was born for other purposes than completing him, or indeed anybody. She wished to think of herself as an individual, not as an addendum. But after all, she had sympathized with the man. She was beginning to understand that that solitude of the soul, which one of her acquaintances, a sculptor, had put into passionate marble, was caused from that sense of incompletion. It was not alone that others failed one. It was self-failure, secret shame, all the inevitable reticences, which contributed most to that. She fell into the way of examining men and women about her, and of asking, is he satisfied? Is she companioned? Has this one realized himself? Is that one really living? She remembered one person, one only, who had given her the impression of abounding physical, mental, and spiritual life. True, she had seen him but a moment, one swift, absurd, curiously haunting moment. That was Carl Wander, Honora's cousin and the cousin of Mary Morrison. They were the children of three sisters, and from what Kate knew of their descendants' natures, she felt these sisters must have been palpitating creatures. Yes, Carl Wander had seemed complete, a happy man, seething with plans, a wise man, who took life as it came, a man of local qualities yet of cosmopolitan spirit, one who would not have fretted at his environment, or counted it of much consequence, whatever it might have been, if she could have known him. But Honora seldom spoke of him, only sometimes she read a brief note from him, and added, he wishes to be remembered to you, Kate. She did not hint, he saw you only a second. Honora was not one of those persons who take pleasure in pricking bubbles. She perceived the beauty of iridescence. If her odd friend and her inexplicable cousin had any satisfaction in remembering a passing encounter, they could have their pleasure of it. Kate, for her part, would not have confessed that she thought of him. But curiously, she sometimes dreamed of him. At last, Ray McRae was coming home. His frequent letters, full of good comment, announced the fact. I've been winning my spurs, commercially speaking, he wrote. The old department heads, whom my father taught me to respect, seem pleased with what I have done. I believe that when I come back, they will have ceased to look at me as a cadet. And if they think I'm fit for responsibilities, perhaps you will think so too, Kate. At any rate, I know you'll let me say that I am horribly homesick. This being in a foreign land is all very well, but give me the good old American ways, crude though they may be. 
I want a straightforward confab with someone of my own sort. I want the feeling that I can move around without treading on somebody's toes. I want, above all, to have a comfortable, entertaining evening with a nice American girl, a girl that takes herself and me for granted, and isn't shying off all the time as if I were a sort of bandit. What a relief to think that you'll not be accompanied by a chaperone. I shall get back my self-respect once I'm home again with you nice, self-confident young American women. It will be good to see him, I believe, mused Kate. After all, he always looked after me. I can't seem to remember just how much pleasure I had in his society. At any rate, we'll have plenty of things to talk about. He'll tell me about Europe, and I'll tell him about my work. That ought to carry us along quite a while. She set about making preparations for him. She induced Honora to let her have an extra room, and she made her fine front chamber into a sitting-room, with a knocker on the door, and some cheerful brasses and old prints within. She came across oddities of this sort in her Russian and Italian neighborhoods, but until now she had not taken very much interest in what she was inclined to term sublimated junk. Mary Morrison took an almost vicious amusement in Kate's sudden efforts at aesthetic domestication, and Marna Fitzgerald, who was delighted, considered it as a frank confession of sentiment. Kate let them think what they pleased. She presented to their inspection, even Mary was invited up for the occasion, a cheerful room with a cream paper, a tawny-colored rug, some comfortable wicker chairs, an interesting plaster cast or two, and the previously mentioned lute. Mary, in a fit of friendliness, contributed a Japanese wall basket dripping with vines. Honora proffered a lamp with a soft shade, and Marna took pride in bestowing some delicately embroidered cushions, white and beautiful with the beauty of Belfast linen. It did not appear to occur to Kate, however, that personal adornment would be desirable, and it took the united efforts of Marna and Mary to persuade her that a new frock or two might be needed. Kate had a way of avoiding shabbiness, but of late her interest in decoration had been anything but keen. However, she ventured now on a rather beguiling dress for evening, a Japanese crepe, which a returned missionary sold her for something more than a song. Dr. von Schreerbrand said it was the color of rust, but Marna affirmed that it had the hue of copper, copper that was not too bright. It was embroidered gloriously with chrysanthemums, and she had great pleasure in it. Mary Morrison drew from her rainbow collection a scarf which accentuated the charm of the frock, and when Kate had contrived a monk's cape of brown, she was ready for possible entertainments, panoplied for sentiment. She would make no further concessions. Her practical street clothes and her homemade frocks of white linen, with which she made herself dainty for dinner at Mrs. Dennison's, had to serve her. "'I'm so poor,' she said to Marna, "'that I feel like apologizing for my inefficiency. I'm getting something now for my talks at the clubs, and I'm paid for my writing, too. Now that it's begun to be published, I ought to be opulent presently.' you're no poorer than we marna said but of course there are two of us to be poor together and that makes it more interesting love doesn't seem to be flying out of your window smiled kate we've bars on the windows 
laughed Marna. Some former occupant of the flat put them on to keep the babies from dashing their brains out on the pavement below, and we haven't taken them off, she blushed. No, responded Kate with a moo. What was the use? Unfortunately, McCrae, the much-expected, had not made it quite plain that he was to land in New York. To be sure, Kate might have consulted the steamer arrivals, but she forgot to do that. So it happened that when a wire came from Ray saying that he would be in Chicago on a certain Saturday night in mid-May, Kate found herself under compulsion to march in a suffrage procession. David Fulham thought the circumstance uproariously funny and he told them about it at the caravansary. They made rather an annoying jest of it, but Kate held to her promise. "'It's an historic event in my mind,' she said with all the dignity she could summon. "'I wouldn't excuse myself if I could, and I can't. I've promised to march at the head of a division. We hope there'll be twenty thousand of us.' Perhaps there were. Nobody knew. But all the city did know that down the broad boulevard, in the mild, damp air of the May night, regiment upon regiment of women marched to bear witness to their conviction and their hope. Bands played, choruses sang, transparencies proclaimed watchwords, and every woman in the seemingly endless procession swung a yellow lantern. The onlookers crowded the sidewalks and hung from the towering office buildings to watch that string of glowing amber beads reaching away to north and to south. College girls, working girls, home women, fine ladies, efficient businesswomen, vague, non-producing, half-awakened women, all sorts, all conditions, black, white, Latin, Slav, German, English, American, American, American. They came marching on. They were proud and they were diffident. They were sad and they were merry. They were faltering, and they were enthusiastic. Some were there freely, splendidly, exultantly. More were there because some force greater than themselves impelled them. Through bewilderment and hesitancy and doubt, they saw the lights of the future shining, and they fixed their eyes upon the amber lanterns as upon the visible symbols of their faith. They marched and marched. They were the members of a new revolution, and as always, only a portion of the revolutionists knew completely what they desired. At the caravansary there had been sharp disapproval of the whole thing. The men had brought forth arguments to show Kate her folly. Mrs. Dennison, Mrs. Goodrich, and Mrs. Applegate had spoken gentle words of warning. Honora had vaguely suggested that the matter was immaterial. Mary Morrison had smiled as one who avoided ugliness, and Kate had laughingly defied them. I march, she declared, and I'm not ashamed of my company. It was indeed a company of which she was proud. It included the names of the most distinguished, the most useful, the most talented, the most exclusive, and the most triumphantly inclusive women in the city. Poor McCrae, put in Fulham, aren't you making him ridiculous? He'll come dashing up here the moment he gets off the train. As a matter of fact, he'll be half expecting you to meet him. You're making a mistake, Miss Barrington, if you'll let a well-meaning fellow-being say so. You're leaving the substance for the shadow. I've misled you about Ray, I'm afraid, Kate said with unexpected patience. He hasn't really any right to expect me to be waiting, and I don't believe he will. 
Come to think of it, I don't know that I want to be found waiting. Oh, well, of course, said Fulham with a shrug, leaving his sentence unfinished. Anyway, said Kate, flushing, I march. They told her afterward how McCrae had come toof-toofing up to the door in a taxi, and how he had taken the steps two at a time. He wrung my hand, said Honora, and got through the preliminary amenities with a dispatch I never have seen excelled. Then he demanded you. Is she upstairs, he asked. May I go right up? She wrote me she had a parlor of her own. She has a parlor, I said, but she isn't in it. He balanced on the end of a toe. Where is she? I thought he was going to fly. She's out with the suffragists, I said. I didn't try to excuse you. I thought you deserved something pretty bad. But I did tell him you'd promised to go and that you hadn't known he was coming that day. She's in that mess, he cried. I saw the Amazon march as I came along. You don't mean Kate's tramping the street with those women. Yes, she is, I said, and she's proud to do it. But she was sorry not to be here to welcome you. Sorry, he said. Why, Mrs. Fulham, I've been dreaming of this meeting for months. Honestly, Kate, I was ashamed for you. I asked him in. I told him you'd be home before long, but he would not come in. Tell her I... I came, he said. Then he went. It was late at night, and Kate was both worn and exhilarated with her marching. Honora's words let her down considerably. She sat with tears in her eyes, staring at her friend. But couldn't he see, she pleaded, that I had to keep my word? Didn't he understand how important it was? I can see him tomorrow just as well. Then you'll have to send for him, said Honora decisively. He'll not come without urging. She went up to bed with a stern aspect, and left Kate sitting, staring before her by the light of one of Mary's foolish candles. They seem to think I'm a very unnatural woman, said Kate to herself. But can't they see how much more important it was that the demonstration should be a success than that two lovers should meet at a certain hour? The word lovers had slipped inadvertently into her mind, and no sooner had she really recognized it, looked at it, so to speak, fairly in the face, that she rejected it with scorn. We're just friends she protested. One has many friends. But her little drawing-room, all gay and fresh, accused her of deceiving herself, and a glimpse of the embroidered frock reminded her that she was contemptibly shirking the truth. One did not make such preparations for a mere friend. She sat down and wrote a note, put stamps on it to ensure its immediate delivery, and ran out to the corner to mail it. Then she fell asleep, arguing with herself that she had been right, and that he ought to understand what it meant to give one's word, and that it could make no difference that they were to meet a few hours later, instead of at the impetuous moment of his arrival. She spent the next day at juvenile court, and came home with the conviction that there ought to be no more children until all those now wandering the hard ways of the world were cared for she was in no mood for sweethearting yet she looked with some covert anxiety at the mailbox there was an envelope addressed to her but the superscription was not in ray's handwriting the colorado stamp gave her a hint of whom it might have come from and ridiculously she felt her heart quickening yet why should carl wander write to her 
she made herself walk slowly up the stairs and insisted that her hat and gloves and jacket should be put scrupulously in their places before she opened her letter it proved not to be a letter after all but only a number of photographs taken evidently by the sender who gave no word of himself he let the snow-capped solitary peaks utter his meanings for him the pictures were beautiful and in some indescribable way sad cold and isolate kate ran her fingers into the envelope again and again but she could discover no note there neither was there any name save her own on the cover at least said kate testily i might have been told whom to thank but she knew whom to thank and she knew with equal positiveness that she would send no thanks for the gift had been a challenge it seemed to say i dare you to open communication with me i dare you to break the conscious silence between us kate did not lift the glove that had been thrown down she hid the photographs in her clock and told no one about them at the close of the third day a note came from ray her line he said had followed him to lake forest and he had only then found time to answer it he was seeing old friends and was very much occupied with business and with pleasure but he hoped to see her before long kate laughed aloud at the rebuff it was she thought a sort of silver tree method of putting her in her place but she was sorry too sorry for his hurt sorry indefinitely and indescribably for something missed if it had been carl wander whom she had treated like that he would have waited on her doorstep till she came and if he had felt himself entitled to a quarrel he would have had it out before men and the high gods at least so she imagined he would have done but upon consideration there were few persons in the world about whom she knew less than about carl wander it seemed as if Honora were actually perverse in the way she avoided his name. End of chapter 13